This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now today we're actually joined by Marcus Burns, a portfolio manager, and Brittany Isaka, an analyst at Safira. That's right. So Safira is known in the markets as being a fundamental-based investment manager with a bottom-up focus, specialising in the small and micro caps. So naturally, Felicity was like, we got to get these guys on the pod because she loves the small cap space. That's it, even the micro caps. (laughs) (laughs) And as you hear throughout the conversation, they really define the definition of a small cap and a micro cap in their perspective. So Brittany, one of our guests today, joined the fund back in July 2021 as an analyst after working at QIC for over four years. She's obviously very involved in the research and day-to-day speakings with the companies, asset allocation and portfolio management. She also has a CFA, which we know is very hard to get and a lot of study would have gone into that. Then we've got Marcus Burns, who's one of the portfolio managers. He's also the co-founder and has been a portfolio manager since uh, the inception of the company in April 2016. Now, he's actually managed Australian, European and global equity portfolios out of Australia and London through very volatile market cycles for over 20 years. So he does have a really established track record generating strong investment portfolio returns for investors. Yeah, and another interesting point um, when we sat down with Marcus is that also he used to work alongside his co-portfolio manager, Matthew Booker, at Schroeder's back in the day. Uh, And together they co-managed the small Australian microcap portfolios. So that's really nice. Reminds me of how we are work wives together, Felicity. Yes, they've stayed together. So they've basically moved from Schroeder's and then started their own fund. How cool. That's right. And they've got a few different funds, but we're going to focus on three today. So you'll hear about the Opportunities Fund quite a lot in today's conversation, which is an actively managed portfolio investing in the Australian and New Zealand companies with a small cap bias. Since inception, the performance of the Opportunity Fund has been 8.6% per annum. So that's great. That's always good. And then you're also going to hear about their Global Opportunities Fund, which has actually just been rebranded. Essentially, in March 2019, they launched the Global Opportunities Fund because they were very confident that this largely unexplored segment of the market presented the greatest opportunities for client wealth creation. Now, the fund's exceptional relative returns in a period of extreme volatility were delivered by carefully constructed portfolio of solid businesses with strong cash flow generation and good balance sheets, which you're going to hear a lot of in this episode. And inception since performance has been 8.7% per annum. Now, since 2019, that's pretty good. That's pretty impressive, seeing as the market we've just had. Not only does this process see great businesses with strong fundamentals added to the portfolio, it ensures businesses that don't generate cash lack suitability or are being priced in a nonsensical way by the market 
are avoided, which is crucial in the microcap space. Definitely. So they're looking at companies that are essentially sustainable and aren't going to go belly up. 100%, which is what every investor wants to do at the end of the day. Impressively, inception performance has been 12.9% per annum. Double digits. We love that. Who doesn't? Alrighty. So let's get into today's conversation. But just quickly as a reminder, guys, obviously our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Felicity and I are advisors at Shore and Partners, but just a quick reminder that this podcast is general in nature and you should seek appropriate financial advice before you make your investment decisions. That's out of the way. Alrighty, let's bring you today's conversation. So welcome, Brittany and Marcus, to Talk Money to Me. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. We're delighted to be here. Thank you. We'd love to start the conversation by addressing the elephant in the room. So with everything that's going on in the markets, the macroeconomic backdrop, interest rate rises, the battle with inflation, as well as geopolitical risks, have you found it tough in 2022 like we have? And from your perspective, do you think all of the bad news is out or is there still yet to come? Well, that is a great question. And it's, um, it's something that you know we debate internally as a team all, the whole time. So to answer the first part of that question, we, we have had a, look, our funds are down this year in terms of actual nominal performance, but we've, out, we've materially outperformed the market across all of our funds. Um, and I think, look, the, the major reason for that really is the style of our investment we, we employ. We, we are very focused on bottom-up companies, very focused on um, real businesses that make, that make cash flow and earnings and have, and have good balance sheets. Many of these traits uh, sounded boring to investors a couple of years ago when they were chasing the next greatest thing, the fastest revenue growth story, the newest disruptive business model, all of which we, uh, you know, we think is fantastic in small companies. But at the same time, it's only great if it translates eventually in something like cash flow and earnings. So avoiding that has been really helpful for our funds. And then we've had on the flip side some stocks that have been, you know, recognized as being good quality businesses that have had, you know, quite good earnings performance during a fairly tough macro environment, and they've actually performed you know, perform really well and actually gone up in a, in a fairly down market. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's been challenging. It's sort of the wheat from the chaff, but we think it's actually creating some really good opportunities now as well. Um, and then perspective on on looking forward, this is obviously the, the multi-trillion dollar question, and I wish I had a, I had a crystal ball myself, but I think we would say that a lot of the uh, sell-off in the markets has been largely driven by rates rising, and obviously there has been a downgrade in earnings as well, driven by rates and, and material costs, energy prices, et cetera, rising. But uh, we would argue that a fair chunk of that inflation news now is now in the price uh, for the market. Uh, there are probably some signs that inflation is abating. We've started to see commodity prices coming off, for example. Um, oil prices are down you know, well, from that, well, you know, well off their highs. Other, other commodity prices, you know, iron ore, um, aluminium, copper, for example, would be down somewhere between 30 and 50% from their peaks earlier this year. And then, you know, lastly, all of, all the stuff about backlog of, of chips and, you know, transport costs, et cetera, that were, you know, writ large all over the papers in the last, you know, 12, 24 months. Um, the, you know, the chip shortage is pretty much over, I believe, according to Wall Street Journal and other sources I've checked out recently. I haven't tried to get, you know, buy 10 new cars personally, but I do understand that chips are now much more readily available. And then, and then transport costs driven by bottlenecks, et cetera, are also well down. So freight rates are off, are off all over the world, you know, well, well down from their highs. And you actually have CEOs like Breville CEO, for example, coming the other day saying that you know, the costs are going the right direction. Um, and then he clarifies saying they're actually going down. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying inflation's over. It's still an issue with wages. 
but there definitely are some signs that, that, that the pressure on, on, on inflation is coming off, which I think is positive and positive for rates. So the market's looking a little bit uh, better, essentially. So a bit more growth on, you would say. Well, I, I think less negative. Um, and look, we, we would say that there's definitely opportunities that have, been, that have appeared from, from, from that sell-off. And you know, if there are good growth stocks, the good prices definitely they, they, they should be attractive. They could, they could be attractive. I'm not saying all of them are, but they, they could be attractive. Yes. Okay, so that that's really good news from our perspective. So I guess you know, to quote yourself, no one has that crystal ball, but let's just pretend that you guys do have a version of one because you're well informed in the markets, right? So what I'm interpreting is, you know, maybe all the negativity is is at its peak, and we could be seeing a shift as we look into 2023. So wanna position this question to both of you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. In your smaller cap fund, you know, in the market of the um, ASX, what's your outlook for the next 12 months? Yeah, so we've obviously seen the small cap universe underperform over the last 12 months um, relative to large caps, which have held up surprisingly well, especially in Australia. Um, And we know during, you know, negative markets and recessions that small caps will underperform. Um, They're a bit more volatile and and illiquid. And we've seen that. And I think um, what we know is that coming out of a downturn and a recession, small caps actually perform very well. And you never can time the bottom, but the best performance comes out, you know, from the bottom coming out. And we think over the next 12 months, the outlook for small caps looks really positive. Um, We've seen, as Marcus mentioned, some great, opportunities in the small cap space. Um, Lots of companies have sold off recently and we think there's great opportunity for high quality names. And yeah, so the outlook for us is that small caps we think will do really well relative to large caps. I love to hear that because I absolutely love small caps. Everyone who listens to Talk Money to Me knows that as well (laughs) uh, because I think that's where you can get the most upside and find that next multi-bagger. So that's what you guys are clearly doing. On the small cap space, can we clarify, what's your definition of a small cap here in Australia? X100, so approximately $3 billion and down would be considered small companies. And then, and then our definition of micro cap would be probably sub $500 million. So turning our attention to the global market, in particular the US, I want to ask, although you're not focused on the large cap side of things, obviously you would be, you know, keeping note on the mega caps, what's going on in the NASDAQ, for example. So any comments there, um, given that you have a fund in the small cap global space? Well, I'm not going to give you a view on that, to be honest, because we, we only have a global opportunities fund, so a single fund, which is really a small cap focus. So we don't really look at um, the Google, we look at Google and Apple from from point of view of curiosity and Amazon, et cetera, from, from a sense of, you know, what are they doing with labor force and what are their valuations like, et cetera, but we don't really try to forecast the valuation or direction of the share prices. So we, we probably have a better view on, on small caps. Um, and, and I guess it would look a bit similar to our view on, on small caps domestically in, in the sense that they've also formed large caps. Um, the global markets have, um, you know, are more volatile in some cases, even less efficient, would you believe, than Australia. And um, that's what really excites about small cap investing globally long-term is the fact that the market is so vast. Uh, it is so under-researched relative to, to the even domestic small caps, we feel. And um, the universe gives us a lot of opportunities. So as long as we stick to a very disciplined process and don't try anything too clever, we think we can we can stock pick our way through that enormous universe and, and buy some really, really interesting businesses, um, which we are indeed finding. So okay, look for, for global would be the same you know, as domestically. We think if there is recovery in markets, smalls and micros, both domestically and globally will do better than large caps because they, they're sold off less. They have a high beta. 
And, um, you know, we do think that inflation probably has peaked. Uh, that's a big call. It is a big call. <laughs> there was a print last week, obviously, in the US that suggested that inflation, you know, was still growing, but it had come off the highs. Um, just all those little anecdotal bits of bits of data we're picking up that suggest that it, it's, it's coming back a little bit. And obviously, they've raised rates pretty aggressively in the States, more so there than here. And that is definitely seeing a, a, an impact on consumer demand, um, house prices, all those things, and, and you're seeing layoffs, et cetera. So unemployment is, is rising in, in, in the US particular, probably will rise in Australia as well. So essentially, you would have been invested in Apple and Google maybe 20, 30 years ago, and now you're really trying to find the next global name in the small cap arena. So let's quickly just turn our attention to Australian small caps, and then we'll come to global a little bit later. Focusing on Australia, right? Can you give us the latest look into your fund? What have you added recently and why? And potentially, what have you removed and why? This is the question everyone loves to hear, obviously. What, what are you buying? What are you selling? And um, can we can we jump on the back of those stock, those stock stories? I think, look, we, we give you a flavor of the kind of things we're buying. And it's it's important that I think investors understand that we, we don't change what we do. So the market dynamic, yeah, as it does change, creates opportunities. We're, we're a very opportunistic, very bottom-up investor. And by that, I mean, we, we look at fundamentals when we're making investment decisions. We love free cash flow businesses. So businesses that generate a history of free cash flow, we look for this, which is backed up by earnings and free cash and, and typically balance sheets that are, that are low or, or not geared. That's been a very untrendy thing for a couple of years because obviously the more gearing, the higher earnings growth or you've done more M&A, et cetera, has been, been, a, been a fairly good place to be whilst rates are going down. But as rates go up, obviously the cost of that debt goes up materially. So to answer your question, we have picked up a couple of names recently we think are interesting uh, in both our small microcap fund. One we could we can talk about is um, is Bravura, BVS, which had a major profit downgrade um, late last week, and the stock got very heavily sold off. We were a pretty small shareholder into that profit downgrade, like a small shareholder, and given the reaction of the market, the stock fell over fifty percent on the day. We just thought it was a, became an incredible opportunity, so we've been buying a fairly large chunk of that, of that company for both our micro cap and our small cap funds. What do we like about it? And a couple of quick bullet points. It's a high quality business that's going through a tough time in, in our opinion. It has had a history of good earnings and reasonable cash flow. The current balance sheet is, is net cash, the tune of about 30 million. And the market cap got sold down to something like 140, 150 million. So the EV is like about 120 if you take off the net cash that's, that, that exists on the balance sheet. Revenue is around about 270 million. And if you look at the average EBIT margin of the business over the last, say, 10 years, it's probably in that range of 13, 14, 15%. So just a simple math on that, 270 times 15% gives you, you know, 35, $40 million of EBIT and you're buying the business on an EV of about 120 million. So three times what we'd consider to be possibly a, a recoverable EBIT level. You know, clients who use a product are incredibly sticky um, and I'm not saying they haven't made some missteps and there's not, not some things they can do to improve the business, but but just in terms of the sheer metrics, the business looks really attractive to us. And the fact that the balance sheet is pristine and it has been a good cash flow generator just leads us to be very excited by the opportunity. So the risk reward to us in that stock looks very favorable. Right. So it's you're buying some more of a bit of a micro cap, which is really interesting. And we absolutely love investable ideas here. So do you have any other ideas that you're looking to add into the fund recently and why? I know we obviously spoke about you've got Nitro in the latest update, which is quite exciting that that takeover. Although you did mention, and I agree, it'd be nice if it stayed listed on the ASX because because obviously there's a lot more upside in Nitro, I believe, as well. But what else can you give us, Marcus and Brittany? Yeah, so another name we've added to the microcap fund is Premium, and the ticker is PPS. 
So Premium, for those who don't know, is one of the leading specialist wealth platforms. And so they do tax and administration for financial advisors. The company's share price actually fell from over $1.50 in November last year um, when rival net wealth lobbed a bid for the company to a low of below 50 cents in June. And, and the fund added to the position slightly before this. So whilst we're aware that the sell-off reflects that net wealth has pulled their bid, and the company did have a disappointing earnings result in February. We felt the recent performance through June was more of a macro kind of fall as opposed to company fundamentals. So we entered the position for several reasons. Um, so the business currently has about 2% of the market share of FUA for the platform space, but they're actually winning 5% of the flows. So we know that flows tend to lead FUA. And so that's a really positive for the business if they're winning double the amount of flows to their market share. In addition, the business actually recently sold a part of their business, um, the international platform business, and it was loss-making. And so a real detractor, not only in terms of earnings, but even distraction from the core Australian business. So they've sold that off now and returned a nice dividend of five cents per share back to shareholders. And at the last update, which was August, the company informed us that they were now charging a fee on cash. So not sure if you know much about the platform space, but there's um, obviously you've got your equities and your other listed investments and also your cash portion. They weren't charging any fee on the cash portion just because cash rates were so low. But as cash rates have moved up higher, they're now able to charge clients a small fee and that'll drop straight to the bottom line because there's no additional cost for the business. And then probably final point is that they're a leader in the high net wealth space. So they've got a really good asset in non-custody, which is kind of off-platform assets. And it's part of the reason we believe that net wealth actually lobbed the bid back in November and we think could provide real um, strategic value to the likes of net wealth or even hub. And probably at worst provide the, the two bigger players with scale in terms of FUA because the more FUA they have on the platform, the greater the margins they can earn just purely from scale. So it's kind of why we like premium. It's why we've added it to the portfolio. It's really interesting you say that because we actually use premium for our clients and we also use their reporting service. So we know that Hub24 is in the reporting service as well, similar to premium, um, but that is very interesting. Hopefully it's due to a lot of our inflows, right, Candice? <laughs> yeah, we're the ones contributing totally. <laughs> so we'll keep putting inflows, right? If it's suitable for the client, obviously. Now on the uh, flip side, on the Australian small cap space, are there any names that you guys are really worried about and cautious on that are screaming big red flags? Uh, there's always something we're cautious about. I think the the one, or there's many, there's many attributes of smalls and micros that make them different to large caps, but one of the particular things we, we flag to clients is that it is actually quite prone to, to bubbles and over-enthusiasm. Equally, it's prone to under-enthusiasm and depression as well. So you get you get incredible movements in shares Share prices well, you know, well above and below their equilibrium levels. Uh, one area we think is probably fairly overcooked right now is lithium. So, you know, everyone is aware of the, of the massive transition to EVs and the, and the huge demand for batteries, and that's led to a, a massive boom in, in lithium price, um, which led to mass, massive boom in lithium stock prices as well. So, there's a lot of listed lithium players in Australia now. You know, many of which are explorers, some of which have got a deposit. Uh, there are very few of which are actually producing lithium. And so we, we just argue that the, the multiples these things are trading on versus what we think is a, a realistic long-term outcome for lithium price doesn't reflect anything like fair value, in our opinion. Um, that's just our view. We could be wrong. Maybe maybe there's no alternative to lithium long-term and it's the only solution, but it does seem to us like there's a, a lot of euphoria around that space. 
probably not justified by long-term fundamentals. It is, it, I would just caution, it is actually hard because there isn't a long history of, of lithium. It's a pretty small material versus, say, copper and alloy. You've you know, got 20, 30, 40, 100 of years of history of the, of the material. It's been around for a long time, but it hasn't been you know, in big demand for a long time. So it looks to us like a potential bubble. Okay, that's interesting to hear. And what about you know other future-facing commodities like you mentioned copper, uranium? What are your thoughts there? You like in that space? Uh, look, we, we we don't have much exposure there to be honest with you, apart from apart from mining service names. And and the main reason for that in our case is we we really struggle to find um, small companies and, and that, that produce those materials with decent mine lives, um, consistent cash flow, and, and a valuation we think is logical or, or attractive. So we tend to play that, you know, exposure to to, to mining through, you know, mining mining service names. Uh, we will find names occasionally. So we own we do own uh, Deterra Royalties, which is a, a mining a royalty on on iron ore produced by BHP in Mining Area C. That's a very long asset, great cash flows, and an incredible valuation in our opinion. So we'll buy them from time to time, but but they're generally pretty challenging to to, to stack up in our model. And I think just to comment on the lithium space, especially in the smaller microcap end of the market, there really isn't too many players that actually are producing. A lot of them are explorers, but yet have, you know, almost million dollars, billion dollar market caps. And and we just can't justify investing in a company that doesn't have cash flow or earnings, um, just purely being driven by the commodity price where, you know, we've seen a 10x in the lithium price. Bojamin's gone from $400 to over $6,000 and, we know how commodity cycles work. Eventually, supply has to meet demand and those things will um, balance out. And we just think that the share price for some of the smaller ends of the town is just unrealistic. Also would flag that, you know, that lithium is prone to technology shocks. Uh, as you guys would be aware, there's, there's probably been three or four battery, you know, technologies in our lifetime. And it was, you know, lead acid, there was nickel cadmium, there's been, a, you know, nickel metal hydride. Now, now they've got lithium iron. There's probably 10 others that, that are out there. And there's never been more research being done on, on batteries than there is today because of that, that huge demand for EVs. So if there is a, a material change in the chemistry of batteries that gives them longer life, lower cost, or, or, or some other benefit, lithium may or may not be part of that chemistry set. So we just don't know. So that is a left field event that could, that could dramatically change the outlook there as well. And then the other thing we would just flag is that you know any any stocks that built up on hyperbole without any fundamentals backing them up in smalls and micros, we'd be very cautious on as well, especially with rates going up. And that's, that's what's hurt people um, over the last 12 months in particular, that, that lack of cash flow, those earnings stories that haven't materialised. So that we won't pick up any names in particular, but that those style of, of stocks would um, still remain a concern to us. Oh, we know the ones you're talking about. You know, just have, look at their share price, right? Like it's you guys identified it in the first <laughs> signs of stress. They're the first to be sold off. So that makes sense. Um, and it makes sense that that's part of your rhetoric is you look for, you know, profitable businesses, you know, that makes sense so that the small kind of mining cap names, um, you know, that you're not investing in makes sense to us. In a moment, we're going to be hearing more from Marcus and Brittany about the Australian market and opportunities they're seeing and also chat about the global market. But before we do that, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. So I hope you stay listening because at the end of this podcast, Brittany and Marcus are going to give us their three top Australian names and potentially three top international names. However, right now, I just want to go back to the Opportunities Fund. So it's got to focus on Australia and New Zealand companies with a mid to small cap bias. And we actually noticed you owned the once ASX darling, A2 Milk. Now, I thought what was interesting is the recent announcement um, about their infant milk formula in the US actually being FDA approved. And the market clearly liked that news popping up 5% on the day of announcement. So obviously you guys are are long managers. um, So assume you also like this announcement. And do you have any further comments on A2 Milk? Well, firstly, thanks for the question. Look, we've got an interesting history today too, actually, because we owned it quite a long time ago before we set up Sferia uh, on the ground that it would be a strong proposition. It was attractively priced, incredibly profitable, and it actually turned out to be an incredibly good investment for us at the time. And then it got very expensive and very well bought on on the sort of momentum thematic. As you know, it had a couple of sort of more challenging years and it's sort of, it's based out in our opinion and we think it's going to go back, go back into growth. So our thesis really is you're buying a really good brand. It's not so much about the patent. It's more about A2 and what A2 stands for. And, and they really have got ownership of that A2 protein. And we think in consumers' minds, both here and, and China, and obviously looking to establish that brand equity in other countries like the US in particular, uh, the announcement made um, to allow you know, the importation of A2 you know, infant formula into the US is obviously a huge positive. It's the second largest infant formula market globally, something like $5 billion of value. And um, it's very, very, very concentrated in the hands of about three players currently. So um, two US players and, and one foreign company completely dominate uh, the US. I think I think it's something like 80 to 85% market share amongst those three those three players. So there's a lot of scope for potential for that to sort of fragment and for um, market share to be taken by some attractive differentiated foreign companies coming into the States. With that kind of market size and with the, you know, the kudos that, that um, A2 has in Asia, um, we think there's a good good scope for it to take some some reasonable market share over time. So, um, look, it's a positive. Can they can they t- you know turn that loss in the states into something profitable in the medium term? Obviously, we hope so. And there's and there's a good chance now. And in fact, the analogy between what the US is going through now and what China went through sort of 10, 15 years ago when when um, foreign players made their first entry into China is quite interesting. There was a a scandal in China where um, melamine powder was mixed with with formula, which unfortunately made some children sick in China. And that created um, a lot of paranoia amongst consumers' minds in China, as you can imagine. And that enabled, you know, high-quality foreign brands to come into China. And I think it hasn't been melamine; it's been a, it's been it's been another another bacteria that entered the, the the food chain in the states. But that definitely created paranoia amongst people, and, and the regulators stepped in and 
asked for a massive recall in, in the US and that that so similar parallels create an opportunity for, for foreign players. So if A2 can establish itself with a quality brand um, and a niche around what it does, then there's every chance it can become a very profitable, you know, income stream for A2 in, in, you know, into the midterm. So back to being one of those ASX darlings again, it's currently trading uh, just under $6 at the moment. So I know consensus is around $8.50. So do you think there's a lot more upside essentially from where A2 Milk is trading at the moment? Or do you think they're going to have to recoup investor confidence in the market again? That's that's a good question. I think I think both really. I think I think there is more upside beyond beyond uh, potentially beyond consensus and certainly beyond the current share price. And it, it, it does take time for investors to kind of you know fall back in love with the stock if they've if they've been in love with it and especially been hurt by it. There is a, a sort of pain that people have to forgive forgive the stock for. It doesn't make much sense, but but it's just psychologically what I think people go through. Uh, we have high confidence in the current management team, David Bortolucci, who who was a previously CEO of Pacific Brands. Um, we have experience with him running pack brands where we were shareholders with him as well. And he did a really good job turning that business around and eventually getting it sold to, to Haynes Brands out of the US. So we know he's a good executive in the consumer space, also quite good at getting, getting businesses taken over. So if A2 doesn't sort of recover to levels that are um, reflective of intrinsic value, then there's always an opportunity to be taken over by, by a large multinational looking to bolt on an attractive brand. That's a really good point because Candice and I always on Talk Money to Me when we're talking about various companies actually say that you do really need to look at the management and if they've got strong management, then that's always a very good sign. So that's actually really nice to hear. I think now that you know it has been sold off, so it's obviously been sold off way too much in your opinion. And you know we think the same because it is a good product. Everyone's heard of A2 Milk. So it's just about them continuing to hit those various goals and catalysts. Yeah, like we'd agree with all that. And, you know, in the meantime, you've got a cracking balance sheet, the $750 million of net cash. Again, one of our theses is that, you know, it's good to have backup of a balance sheet that doesn't need doesn't need to be repaired. It is cash generative. And if those, if those earnings recover internationally, which we think they will, then the stock's, on, the stock's not looking too expensive. Oh, I love a good balance sheet. I get excited when we talk about that sort of stuff. But let's turn our attention to the global side of things now. Any names that are exciting you? Give us an update on the fund, you know, what's been in and out recently within the portfolio. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about Global. It's, we've, we've done a, a bit of rebranding there, actually. It was previously the Sphere Global Microcap Funds. So, as you know, we have a microcap fund domestically. We, we love micros. We love smalls. We love mids, but we think micros and smalls are particularly exciting because the um, just the, the sheer alpha opportunity in those, in those less researched areas gives us massive scope we think to potentially add value as fund managers obviously we've got to do our job properly and, and and do the research but if we do we think you know we can cover interesting um and exciting angles um and we thought micros globally would be the same the same thing but we've pivoted to global global smalls and changed the name to sphere opportunities and really raised the market cap to include the small cap index so that's quite dramatically changed the universe in which we invest um and really made the largest cap we can invest in is something like 20 billion which is the largest stock in the Global Misky Small Cap Index, whereas previously we had a market, a sort of market cap around about a billion, billion and under. So we've got a much bigger scope to play in, much bigger brand names people have heard of. So some of the stocks we have in the portfolio, like Burberry, for example, or Zillow Group in the US, are names that people would have heard of. They're not just obscure little um, names that people would never have heard of in the market cap space. So that excites us. The fact that the universe is bigger also excites us. The one negative, I suppose, from an investor's point of view is that we are playing in a slightly bigger cap spectrum which some people have argued means it's it's more efficient. I there's less opportunity for us to invest uh, or to find you know mispriced securities. 
And I'd agree with that, but I'll just counter by saying that we do see a much, much bigger universe, which should you know, give us still good scope to add, add opportunity. So that's the kind of update there. Um, with our change in the index, we've changed our composition. So we were very heavily skewed to Europe um, and Asia and less so in the States. And the, the index change has meant we've got to move back more US focus. So there's now something like 40 to 45% of the fund is now back in US stocks. Um, that's materially underweight the US, sorry, the US component of the index, which is about 60%. But we've picked up some really interesting names. I flagged Zillow, which, which we own, which is like a, the REA of the US. I mean, you might have come across that and some of your viewers would have been experienced with some understanding of what Zillow does. The model in the US is quite different to Australia, though. So we've got a crackingly good model with REA in Australia where essentially the vendor pays for their upgrades for um, advertising. Um, and that paranoia of the vendor drives um, an incredible opportunity for, for real estate agents to, to get um, you know, people to upgrade their ad and, and pass that money through to REA. So they probably have the best business model in the world. Zillow's effectively less mature in many ways, but obviously the market size is vastly bigger. So, you know, we see good, good scope for that business to grow long-term. It's balance sheet, if you like balance sheets, um, it's something like $2 billion of net cash because it got out of a flipping program where it was buying and flipping properties. It, it made a bit of an error, I think we think, moving into that space. And as it's backing out of that, it's liquefied all those properties and turned that into cash. So it's now got a huge amount of cash in the balance sheet, something around about $2 billion of net cash, uh, which is using to buy back the stock. And it's trading on some multi-year lows because um, the rate rising story has definitely hurt house prices. People are worried about transaction volumes. Um, and then obviously, as they got a house flipping business, people thought, well, that's a, that's a hit to earnings. So we think strategically the right, strategically the right move, but definitely um, has hit the share price. And that gave us an opportunity to go and, and buy those shares at, at, at sort of multi, multi-year lows, which we think is super attractive. Um, I deflag we, we bought Burberry, which is you know global luxury brand trading on sort of sub ten times EV to EBIT, which we think is very very attractive for a brand of that of that pedigree. Um, again, massive amounts of net cash on balance sheet, something like eight hundred million pounds of net cash, so it can buy back stock, pay dividends, um, and um, continue to grow earnings. Although you know, presumably earnings going to slow, earnings have slowed down a bit with this year with Europe going through its Ukrainian crisis, etc. And yeah, we're looking a feel for, for other names that, that super excite us. And we've we've added a plumbing supply business recently called Ferguson in the US, which is uh, one of the top three plumbing supply businesses. I think a bit like Reese in Australia, you know, really long history of growing earnings, very good margins, incredible cash flow. And that business has again been sold off heavily on the on the housing cycle fears in the States. So we find these sort of these opportunities where you know, thematically, people are right. Rates are rising. House prices get hurt, but the reaction from the market, in many cases, is super exaggerated. We, 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 you know, we find, and so you know, names like Zillow and and Ferguson to us have you know really hit our radar screen as being really well-run businesses um, that are going through temporarily tough times that create the opportunity for us to invest in. So there, there be a couple of names we've we've added recently to, to that portfolio, and that we we are really excited about. That's great. We always love hearing under the hood what's going on in the portfolio, but it sounds like you're quite keen on the US housing and material market. You're not, I guess, the outlook there very worried, particularly with the index change that you've just explained. You can go more into that space. Exactly. Look, I guess we're not thematic investors. We think thematic investing is quite dangerous. I know it's it's kind of dangerous that we think just to follow thematic down the line, like lithium, for example, or EVs and just buying everything that's related to that, that, that you know, the, the technology, you know, around those areas. Because if you don't do the work on the actual, the stock and what's imputed in the share price already, you, you run the risk of just, you know, falling a herd over a cliff. So, uh, yeah, we, we do think where there's been rate increases and people selling off shares aggressively, probably in relation to thematic, thematic, you know, house prices are falling, maybe we should just sell everything related to housing. 
that actually creates an opportunity if, if it's more than appeared in the share price, which in those two names I flagged before, we think we think it is. But yeah, we would be pretty, we'd, you know, we wouldn't just walk into it without doing a lot of work. And in both those cases, balance sheets are really good. Um, businesses have gone through many downturns before and haven't haven't gone into losses, et cetera. So we know they can they can withstand a shock, a macroeconomic shock like that. And that does typically get factored more into the share price than um, yeah, well, the share price factors in a lot more on the downside than we think is warranted. So we'll we'll take the other side of that trade. Um, I feel like Rivera in Australia. You know, we think we think when people panicked about some news flow, it sometimes is justified. In other cases, it's um it's it's overly reflected in the share price. That's a really interesting point, and also a very good segue to actually to our next question. So, I guess the question is, what excites you about global opportunities rather than Australia? Because at the moment, we've got more of a bit of an Australian focus rather than the US. And why do you think that you guys can actually do it better than your peers overseas? And I've got another question, but I'll let you answer that one first. Okay. That's, look, they're two really good questions. I think, look, I think what excites us is as bottom-up investors, we love scope to, to be able to you know wander around and find opportunity, I guess. So if if, if you look at the, the landscape in Australia as a parallel, and there's something like two thousand three hundred shares listed in Australia, the top hundred is hundred shares, the, the small cap index is the next two hundred. So the, the top three hundred shares are the small cap and the large cap index, and then you've got micros effectively. So roughly call it two thousand shares. Now in that space, a ton lose money. But some make money and some are really well run that are just completely uncovered and undiscovered. And so by analogy, you, you take the same logic and look at globally, and those numbers would be much, really much bigger than maybe the top 1,000 shares or large cap in the next couple of thousand, small cap, et cetera, in the next you know, 20,000 micro cap. But you have just an incredible scope to find businesses that are either regional, regional champions, you know, entrepreneurially led, but also really poorly covered. So, you know, you have multi-billion dollar businesses in the, in the US that are covered by three regional analysts, for example. Um, it's just such a different scope to Australia. I mean, a multi-billion dollar business here would have 10 analysts covering it. But in the US, because it's such a vastly big market, so liquid, you just get this incredible scope for, for inefficiency to occur. There's there's ETFs trading up there. There's, there's retail investors, there's hedge funds doing all kinds of weird things with stocks from time to time, which creates just huge scope for opportunity if you can, if you can be patient and, and do the work. So I think the one thing that we really see as a benefit for us sitting in Australia, as opposed to being necessarily in the thick of these markets, is, is, is distance. Now, people go, well, isn't that a negative? And we flip it around and say, well, why isn't it a positive? I mean, we get the data uh, or the information flow the same time as a hedge fund. Okay, maybe if you're in New York and you've got a direct line to, uh, to the, the, C, the CBOT or whatever it is, you've got 0.2 of a second head start on the information flow. But we're not, we're not HFTs. We're not trying to trade that, that um, 0.2 of a second informational advantage. We are looking at the information with, with, with the benefit of, of, of distance and, um, and time. And we just try to spot big anomalies. And I think, you know, with, with the discipline approach, you know, the focus on cash and earnings and valuations, which, which we have at Sphere, um, that does lend itself pretty well. And if we've, we've back tested this stuff, looking at Bloomberg models, putting in the assumptions we'd, you know, for the sort of stocks we'd be buying and actually, you know, focus on valuation and cash flows leads to tremendous outperformance over those global indices over time. So, that's why we're excited because the universe is enormous and we, we, we are, we're really passionate about investing. And those two things, I think, will probably give us a real long-term advantage there. So to date, the proof, proof's been there. Performance has been pretty strong in that fund. Those are really good points. And you've actually just got my next question essentially and already answered it, that cash flow, looking at cash flow globally does lead to outperformance. So I guess that's a really good point for everyone listening. Sorry, I jumped the gun there, but yes. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish off with our favorite topic here at Talk Money to Me. I want to hear from both of you from your perspectives on your top three Australian names that you're liking and why really briefly and then three if you have global names that you're loving and why 
Yeah, so it might start on the Aussie side. So one name we hold in the micro and small cup is MHJ or Michael Hill Jeweler. Uh, quick summation, um, Daniel Bracken, who's the MD, has come in a couple of years ago and transformed the business. So he's rolled out digital, omni-channel, um, built out their new ERP system, and, you know, now they've got a million loyalty members. So he's, he's really come in and transformed the business. Um, they've had 12 quarters of revenue growth despite COVID and despite um, reduced store count. And the business is trading on four to five times EV to EBIT. It's got 100 mil net cash because we love great balance sheets. And we just think this business has got so much upside opportunity. And even if, you know, we're heading to a downturn and, and consumers stop spending earnings half, you know, it's still trading on eight to nine times with great management, great balance sheet and a really good runway for growth. So that's one name we really like. And just on that, the inventory, one thing we always talk about with retailers is we're not worried about the inventory and I guess heading into the Christmas season, right? So it's looking positive from your side? Yeah. I mean, their inventory is quite different to a normal retailer in that, you know, diamonds kind of never date, you know, it's not like a a dress and fashion. So, you know, their inventory turn is actually quite low, but it's not an issue for the business. And Christmas and New Year's is the best time of, you know, greater sale, the most earnings they make. So we're definitely not worried about inventory for Michael Hill. Oh, we should be getting diamonds this Christmas then. That'd be nice. I know. (laughs) They've just released a five carat one as well. I was up in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago seeing that. So it was Quite impressive, quite, um, yeah, big diamond. Oh, your job is hard. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right, that's one. Give us another. Uh, look, it's going to sound like we're obsessed about, about retailers, but uh, we really like Universal Stores, which is, um, you know, targeted sort of youth fashion brands. That's got a decent role ahead of it, really good management team, and um, is actually just looking to expand via some acquisitions. So that's that's been, a we think, a really well-run company. We don't think that, you know, 15 to 25-year-olds are as exposed to consumer discretionary, either not, they're not done it owner houses yet they haven't got consumer debt so likely to probably be less impacted by you know rising energy bills etc um and interest rates and their footprint there is expanding fairly strongly and there's a lot of scope to to move potentially internationally like into new zealand or singapore or further afield and that's not trading too expensively and it's got a good balance sheet um so we like that one and then i guess a micro cap that's almost small cap now is um so called mater which i don't know if you've come across but i mentioned we we do like some mining service names that give us the access to resource companies without having to take on the resource risk. And Mater uh, would be one of those. It was an IPO about three years ago, um, founder-led by Luke Mater um, and his team. Um, business has, has grown something in excess of 30% a year for the last four or five years um, and done it all organically without without need to raise any capital. So it was a pure sell-down during the IPO, pretty small listing, hasn't raised a, a, a small team of capital and has managed to grow organically. So it's got a very high return on capital um, as, it, as it rolls out and um, and it basically serves Caterpillar equipment. So it has mechanics running around doing uh, work on site for large mining companies on their on their fixed plant and um, it's taken share from the OEMs and that's that, that share-taking game has been a, been a very good um, experience for these guys. They've rolled that business model from WA into the rest of Australia successfully and they've now taken it internationally into the US and Canada where it's um, it's fairly nascent. But uh, we're probably 18 months into the States and that's that's showing incredibly good signs of gaining traction. And the Canadian operation probably opened up about 12 months ago and, again, is also starting to show real traction up in Canada. And you can imagine with those oil sands in Canada and the size of the mining market up in those markets and the fleet. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Well, that's one definitely to watch. And that sounds interesting to see that play out. We actually did the IPO. We actually did the IPO at Shore & Partners. So, yeah, we are familiar. We are fans. 
We are fans. That's it. And then just quickly, any other names you want to add to the global space? Oh, look, I've already flagged um, a couple of names we own and we like, like Zillow Group and, and Ferguson. I think they're, they're two I, I, I would highlight. And then, look, one, I'll give you one really long-term left field name because, you know, maybe someone out there is interested in this. But um, if you're interested in gut health, um, there's a stock we own in Sweden called Biogaia that produces um, probiotics for the gut. So there is an absolutely vast treasure trove of, of bacteria in the gut, something like I don't want to say hundreds of thousands, probably it's probably millions, but let's go hundreds of thousands. And absence of those or, or excess of those can obviously lead to massive shifts in your gut health. This company is probably in the top five in the world in probiotics and take a very clinical approach to it. So they don't just produce the bacteria and then sell it in some form and hope that it does a good job. They, they clinically test and trial a bit like a, a biotech company would to try and prove um, the benefits. And if they're proved, then they then they market the, the benefit to that. So it's got something like 10, 10 strains of bacteria currently um, being produced and sold globally. And it, it's probably, I mean, I don't know how many, how many hundreds of strains there are that they could do over the future. There's a lot of potential for that. And as I think people know, gut health is becoming an incredibly um, big area. It's an area that people are becoming much more aware of. And these guys would be one of the leaders in that field. Profitable business, great margins, net cash balance sheet, um, not, a, not a particularly cheap multiple, but very long runway ahead of it, I think, in terms of what it could do with growth. Um, and I think they're just beginning on, their long, on a long pathway. And now we like to wrap with a final question for both of you. Coffee, tea or tequila? Coffee. Yeah, coffee for me. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. They're your portfolio managers. <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. That was such a great episode and we've got a lot of great investable ideas and insights there. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. Alrighty. Wow. That was a great chat. And I was writing down all these codes that they were mentioning. Good to know that they're liking stocks that we are familiar with as well, Felicity. And interesting their comment um, that they think it's a bit of a bubble in the lithium space. So we'll see if that prediction plays out or not. Like he said, you know, no one has a crystal ball. It's just their best guess at the end of the day. Now, before we sign off, we hope you enjoyed today's special guest interview episode. But please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoring Partners and obviously the guys are portfolio managers at Safira, today is not constituted as personal financial advice. All the information is known at the time of recording, which is the 15th of November. That's it. What a great episode. So make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please give give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever else you would listen to your podcast. And remember, if you have any questions or you want to book in a meeting with us, email us at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. How do you say goodbye in Swedish? I don't know. Goodbye. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good point. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. 
In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 